0: Today is Palm Sunday, it's the day that we celebrate the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem to begin the final week of his life, his Passion Week, um, the final seven days that he would live on the planet. How many of you know that the final words of a dying man, a man who's about to die, the final words are extremely important? Would you agree with that? And so Jesus spoke to us and taught us and instructed us and so we should follow uh, that, that teaching and that instruction with everything that we have. This morning, I want to just take a few minutes and, and talk about the cross and uh, the crucifixion and all that Jesus endured. But I don't believe it's going to be a message that leaves you down and hurting and bummed out and you're like, oh man, look what Jesus had to go through. Oh, yuck. No, no, no. You see, he went through all that for you and I, but the good news is that he didn't stay on the cross. And uh, he is risen from the dead. That's the good news. Can you say amen to that? And so the Lord always, there's always these these paradoxes that happen in our life. For instance, um, finding joy in an instrument of death. I mean, when we talk about a cross and we rejoice in it, as we sang a moment ago, I will cherish the old rugged cross. To, to do that seems like a paradox. Why would you worship or be excited about a, a, an instrument of death. I mean, you wouldn't do that with an electric chair or a gas chamber or something like that. And friend, it's not just the cross itself, it's who died on the cross and what was accomplished at the cross. That's why we rejoice in the cross of Jesus Christ. But you know, it's fascinating to me how that God uses the weak things of the world to confound the wise. The apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, "Brothers." Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Verse 27 says, but God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are Verse 29, so that no one could boast before him. So that no one would glory in what's been accomplished in their lives. You see, friend, we we have no right to say, look at me and look how great I am and look how wonderful my my lifestyle is now. Yes, I used to be a sinner. Yes, I used to be a bum. Oh, but look at me now. Listen, we have no reason, we have no right to, to glory in that. That's all the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are what we are by the grace of God. Can you say amen to that? We are what we are by God's grace. But God chooses the foolish things, the the simple things, the weak things. And he uses those. He uses people like you and I, just ordinary people. People that if you were looking for somebody extraordinary, you might look the other way. You might look right past this old boy. But I'm telling you, God chooses us. To accomplish great things. And it is a paradox. There's some other paradoxical thinking in the scripture. For instance, the first shall be last. <laughs> to be great, you must be a servant. Bless those who persecute you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. To him who asks for your coat, give him your cloak also. Now that seems, that seems like a paradox. That seems Uh, so odd and so weird for me to wrap my brain around it. Why in the world would God want me to do those things? I'm telling you, again, it's so that I will not glory in his presence. I will not glory in what's been accomplished so no man could boast. Paul even uh, spoke to the church and said that salvation uh, is a gift of God. It's given freely, uh, lest any man should boast. It's not acquired, it's not uh, bought, it's it's salvation is something that God gives the grace of God the grace of God is given to us freely and so at the Red Sea when when the armies of Pharaoh were, were coming you recall the children of Israel had no hope the, the sea was in front of them the desert was around them and uh, the the armies of Pharaoh were coming and uh, they were going to bring the Jews back they let them go on Passover Uh, They let them go because of the 10 plagues that God sent their way, the judgments of God. And finally, the Pharaoh said, get these Jews out of here. So they all left and they're on their way to the promised land. And then something changed in Pharaoh's heart. And he said, you know, I can't let 2 million slaves get away from me. We need their work. We need all that they uh, accomplished for us. And so they went after the slaves and they went after the, the, the Jewish people to bring them back. And so Moses is standing at the, Um, on the shore of that lake, that sea, and God said to him, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Now, wait a minute. You want me to stand still? It's exactly what I want you to do. I'm going to show myself strong. I'm going to show myself great. Let me tell you something, friend of mine. God specializes in taking the painful things in our lives and turning them into triumphant victories. He specializes in these kinds of things. He specializes in taking your weakness and your frailty and your inability, your insecurities, your self-doubt, all the fears and such that you have in your life, all those things, God specializes in taking them and turning them into something that is triumphant. He specializes in that, and he calls you right where you are, just as you are. God loves you and calls you and says, I want you to be mine, I want you to serve me, but I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna use you in such a way that you'll not be able to glory in what I've done. I wanna take your weakness, I wanna take your frailty, I wanna take your emptiness, and I wanna fill you with me. How many of you know Jesus is looking for people he can fill up as a vessel? He's not looking for strong vessels, he's looking for weak vessels, that he can be strong through. He wants to fill you with his presence and fill you with his love, but he can't fill you when you're full of yourself. He can't fill you until you empty yourself out. And sometimes we we are emptied out during times of trial and times of testing and painful things in our lives. God will allow us to walk through those that he might show himself strong on our behalf. That he might turn them around into triumphant victories. You see, God specializes in turning our scars into stars. He specializes in taking our tragedy and bringing about triumph in our lives. If anyone in this room knows what I'm talking about, say a good amen out there. Amen. You'll recall when armies were coming against King Jehoshaphat, he was told by the Lord, I want you to send out your singers and your musicians. Now wait a minute, that's no way to battle against an enemy. This enemy is coming against us with sword and shield and spear and Catapults and and chariots and horses, they're coming against us. It's three armies. King Jehoshaphat fasted and sought the Lord, and the Lord spoke to him. He said, I want you to send out your singers and your musicians. Now, that was just about the, the opposite of what he thought he should do. But yet, that was God's plan. So when the singers and musicians went before the army, and they began to sing and began to worship God, and began to give him praise and honor and glory to the name of the Lord. Hosanna, he is mighty and he's greatly to be praised. When they begin to praise God, God set ambushments against the enemy and all three of those armies turned on one another and began to kill one another and there was not a shot fired by the Israelites. There was not a sword drawn, there was not a spear thrown. God fought their battles for them. May I suggest to you that when you begin to praise him, he shows up. May I suggest that when you worship him and put him first in your life, he comes on the scene and he says, let me do that for you. Let me battle your enemies for you. Let me win the victory for you because he's a miracle working God and he's a great mighty man of war and he wants to fight your battle for you. Somebody say amen. 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 Then when the children of Israel came across into the promised land, across the river Jordan, God told them to march once a day for seven days around the city of Jericho and then on the seventh day they were to march seven times around. So once a day for six days, then on the seventh day, I want you to march around seven times. And God told them to keep their mouths shut while they're marching. I found that interesting because if I'm marching around the walls and about the third day, nothing's happened, people are laughing at us, people are throwing stuff at us, they're just making a mockery of us, then I'm probably gonna be mouthing off. I'm probably gonna be saying saying stuff like, well, good grief, I don't think this is even gonna work. What do you think? I don't know, but my feet are really getting tired. Can you imagine what we would have been saying? Now, don't look at me real piously. You would have been doing the same thing because we're just human. But God told the, told the children of Israel, I want, you, I want you to be quiet. I don't want you to say a word. I don't want you to shout. I don't want you to blow your trumpets. I don't want you to, to, to flash your, your armament. I just want you to mar- march. This is what I've commanded you to do. March around the city. I have given you the city. So on the seventh day, God told him, he said, now on the seventh day, after you've gone seven times, then I want you to shout for I have given you the city. And I'm telling you, when they shouted, God began to move and the walls of that city began to crumble and they came down. Now, I've always thought that they fell over flat like that, but when we were visiting Jericho in uh, about 20 something years ago, Glenda and I were in the Holy Lands and they took us to the city of of Jericho. It's not there anymore. It's just ruins. And you can look down where it's been excavated and you can see what they said were the tops of those walls. And they said those walls just came down into the earth. The earth just swallowed the walls of the city. I've always liked to imagine that an angel or two, when they begin to shout, they begin to glorify God after walking around and walking around and walking around and being obedient to what he told them to do. And then when they shouted, I believe some angels were present and they just pushed those walls. They just pushed them down into the earth. The earth just swallowed those walls so the children of Israel could come in uh, with, without having to climb up over the walls that had fallen. They just were able to, to swarm the city and they won a great battle and God showed himself mighty. He said, shout for I have given you the city. And there's some things in your life, some promises that God's given you. And you, you've got this length of time between... Uh, promise given and promise fulfilled. And for some of us, it's like a lifetime. There was a promise given to me when I was young and it's not been fulfilled yet. And I just wanna encourage you not to give up. I wanna encourage you to keep fighting. I wanna encourage you to keep your confession strong. I wanna encourage you to keep your faith up. You say, Pastor, how do I keep my faith up? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. You being here this morning, your faith is being built. you watching us online this morning. Your faith is being built as we're quoting the Word of God and we're telling you what God is saying about your situation. Listen, I want you to shout because he's given you the city. He's given you that promise. You may not see it yet, but I'm telling you if God promised it, he will make it happen. He's not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent and change his mind. When God promises something, he fulfills it. When God calls you, that calling is good for the rest of your life. Nothing can change the call of God. Well, I know God called me when I was young to do you know, something, fill in the blank. But man, I've got a mortgage and I've got a marriage. And I've got kids. I've got responsibilities. Surely God understands. And I say to you, Surely the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. (laughs) He doesn't change his mind about those to whom he extends his grace or gives his call. God does not change his mind. If he called you, then it doesn't matter how much time has transpired because time means nothing to God. He works in his own time. He works in in the fullness of days, in the fullness of time. When God's ready to move, he's going to move. So you and I need to be looking at things from heaven's perspective. And when you realize God made a promise to me and God is going to fulfill his word, he's going to bring his promise to pass. He's not a man that he should lie and his ways are higher than mine and his thoughts higher than mine. And so I don't always understand everything and I can't figure everything out. But let me tell you something. I trust God. I trust his word. He's faithful to his word. Can you say amen? And so the resurrection shows us that in God's hands, intended evil becomes ultimate good. That's the Genesis 50-20 principle. The book of Genesis, the 50th chapter, it's the last chapter of Genesis. And the story of Joseph and his family has been taking now some 13 chapters from chapter 37 to chapter 50 of the book of Genesis to tell the story. And now we're coming to a climax of the story. Let me quickly give you the backstory. Number one, Joseph was a boy who was uh, despised by his half brothers. He had one full blood brother, but he had 10 brothers that were born of another woman. They're all born of the same father, but various mothers. They all lived together in communal living. This is very common back in this day for a man to have more than one wife. After being married for 43 years, I'm really not sure why I would want another wife. (laughs) And I mean that in the nicest sense. Glenda's in the nursery, so would y'all tell her that? Tell her I was smiling and I love her with all my heart. Amen. Let me tell you something. One's one's enough for this boy. But but Joseph was born uh, to his father and his mother and He was a special child to Jacob, because Jacob loved his mother, and when she died, a piece of him died also. Many of you in this room have lost spouses, and you know exactly what it's like to lose a spouse. You know what it's like to lose a child. You know what it's like to lose a parent. You understand the pain and the hurt that you go through. And so, as a result of his feelings for his boy, he he treated him with more respect and honor and doted on him more than did the other boys. How many of you know that's not a good idea? <laughs> it seems like a lot of families in the Bible were dysfunctional. <laughs> I don't know why, other than God wants us to know that not everybody's perfect. You can relate to these stories and these incidents and the things that happened to these people. And so, sure enough, here's a dad who doted on his little boy, and he, as he grew, he, he made a, had a coat made for him that had many colors was representative of the fact that he would be the heir to all that the father had. I'm telling you what, these brothers grew to despise Joseph. Joseph grew into young teenage years and he began to get these dreams from God, dreams of leadership, dreams of accomplishment, dreams that showed him leading and his brothers bowing down to him. His, even one of the dreams had, had him as the, uh, here and, and his mom and his dad, as their mom and stepdad rather, dad and stepmom, as, um, as, as, the, as the moon and the star and the, the moon and the sun, and then the, the brothers were like stars, and they were all bowing down to him, even his mother and his father, worshiping him. He would be in leadership. Well, those were dreams from God. God wanted him to know that. Joseph's problem was telling that to his brothers. He didn't keep it quiet. I always like to contrast that with a New Testament story. Of a young woman by the name of Mary. Mary was about 14 or 15 years old when the angel of the Lord came to her and said, "You're going to be, uh, you're going to be bearing a child, and uh, this child's going to be the Christ child, the Savior, the, uh, the Messiah of the world. You've been chosen. You're highly favored. You're going to be the one." And so, when Mary heard this, the Bible says she pondered these things in her heart. She didn't run and tell everybody, "Hey, guess what? I'm going to have a baby, and I'm not going to." I'm gonna be a virgin and I'm not gonna have relations with a man, but I'm gonna have a baby. I'm sure everybody would have laughed her to scorn. I don't know what else they might have done. So she pondered it in her heart. Joseph did not. He told everybody, so his brothers hated him. Long story short, virgin, they, they snatched him one day, kidnapped him, threw him into a pit, an empty cistern, and waited until some Midianite slave traders came by. And they sold their brother to these slave traders. for 20 pieces of silver, they sold him. And then started a a 700 mile journey of Joseph as a slave. When he got to Egypt, he knew no one. He didn't know the culture. He didn't know the food. He did not know the language. He was a total foreign uh, kid and he was 17 years old. First time away from home. Can you imagine? what went through that young man's heart and mind. But the Bible says that the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. Everybody say that, the Lord was with him. Now say this, the Lord is with me. Amen, the same God who walked with Joseph through the pit and the palace and the prison is the same God who's with you and I today. Can you say amen to that? And so this this Genesis 50, 20 principle, I'm trying to get to it. Through a series of of events, interpreting dreams and so forth, uh, Joseph was made uh, second in command to the Pharaoh of all of Egypt. Egypt was the greatest nation on the planet. And uh, so uh, this young man had like a prime minister's position. Now he's 30 years of age. Now he knows all the Egyptian customs. He knows the the language he dresses and wears eye makeup and shaves his head and wears the same clothing that an Egyptian would, would wear. And so here come his brothers down from, from Canaan, where they've been living all this time. They're in a famine and there's nothing to eat and they have no provisions. So they come down to Egypt where all the grain is, where all the provisions are. And they come before Joseph. And they, I love this. This is like this is like God just, just working it out supernaturally. He brought them before their brother. And they had to humble themselves before their brother. They were bowing down. The dream of his youth and childhood was coming to pass. And when it came time for Joseph to reveal himself uh, as, as their brother, he said to them, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Can you say that with me? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. See, that's the Genesis 50, 20 principle. And the resurrection of Jesus shows us that in the hands of God, what was intended evil becomes ultimate good. God turns it around every time. He's turning it around for you in your life. You see, friend, there can't be a victory without a battle. There's no promised land without a wilderness. There's no resurrection without first a crucifixion. And what you're walking through in your life may seem like Friday night to you. It may seem dark, it may seem like all your dreams have been crucified on a cross and put into a tomb. Maybe your marriage, you think your marriage is dead but it needs to be resurrected. Maybe your ministry seems like it's dead, but it needs to be resurrected. Well, I'm telling you, we're the people of the resurrection this morning. We serve the God of the resurrection this morning. We serve a resurrected living Lord Jesus who lives forevermore and is seated at the Father's right hand this morning. That's who we are. So believe God to bring resurrection life into your life. May seem like Friday night, but Sunday's on the way. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Amen. Now, let's talk about the crucifixion for just a moment and and see where this takes us. Um, Crucifixion probably began among the Persians. The best we can tell, Uh, they, they were the first ones to hang a man on a tree. They would impale the man with, with spikes with nails that would tie him up with ropes however they could. They would, they would hang him up and they would suspend his feet above the earth so he couldn't touch the ground. Roman, uh, the, the Romans, Alexander the Greek introduced his practice to Egypt and to Carthage, which is where the Romans learned it. And it was the most painful and cruel method of, of execution that was reserved only for slaves, revolutionaries, and the vilest of criminals. In the days of Jesus, over 250,000 men were condemned to die in this fashion because of rebellion and insurrection against Rome. So in its earliest forms, victims were tied to a tree or they were impaled on a pole in an upright position to keep their feet from touching what was considered holy ground. In Rome, for Roman execution, flogging was a legal preliminary to every execution flogging, and only women and Roman, Roman senators or soldiers were exempt. The executioner would strip the victim naked, tie him to a pole, and beat him mercilessly with whips called the cat of nine tails. These short whips consisted of leather straps that had pieces of, of sheep bone in them, and lead balls that were tied to the ends of them, and so the man would be flogged on his back, on his legs, on his buttocks, and the severity of the scourging was determined by the disposition of the soldiers. Sometimes they would beat the man until they were tired and then rest, and a, and a substitute would come in. A guy would spell him, Here, let me take it. You're tired. You sit down. I'll take it from here. And they just whipped and they just beat. There was no mercy, there, there, was, no, there was no compassion. These men had had flogged hundreds, perhaps thousands, of men in their career. That's what they did. They got up, they ate breakfast, they started flogging people. Then they even broke for lunch, took a little break, got up, started flogging more people until five o'clock, and they clocked out, went home. Well, I'm 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 stretching that just a little bit, but this is what they did. This is what they 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 they, they beat men. If you if you want an example, if you want to see something, I, I recommend you. You see uh, The Passion of the Christ, the Mel Gibson movie uh, starring James C- Caviezel as Christ. Um, don't take your children to see it. it it's, it's very gory. It's, it's extremely bloody and violent, in the, particularly in the whipping section of the movie. It was more than I could take. I could not watch. I, 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 was, I wasn't saying it out loud, but in my heart I was like, stop it, stop it. Let's move on somewhere in the movie. Stop beating him. I was just watching a movie. I cannot imagine what it would be like to experience that in person. The um, the Roman soldiers would repeatedly strike Jesus back with full force, and the the flogging itself uh, was intended to weaken the victim to a state just short of collapse or just just short of death, and they would. Uh, The iron balls would cause deep contusions. The leather straps and the sheep bone would cut into the skin and the tissue below the skin. Then the lacerations would tear into the skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. Pain and blood loss generally set the stage for circulatory shock. Then, being whipped within an inch of his life, he would be forced to carry the the patibulum, which, uh, which was the crossbar. Maybe you were here last year and you got to see me the, do the illustrated sermon. I walked up here with a, a, a crossbeam on my shoulders. It, was, it wasn't real. it's was made out of cardboard. <laughs> the real ones are like 75 to 125 pounds to carry on your shoulders up to the place that they're gonna crucify you. Carrying it knowing that as soon as you got there, you'd, you'd be put on, on, up on a pole to die barely able to carry that patibulum. In fact, Jesus fell, if you'll recall, and the soldiers conscripted a man by the name of Simon, and he picked up the crossbeam and carried it for Jesus. Chances are, from where he came from, uh, this man was was black. Uh, we don't know exactly, but just judging from the area that he came from, he was a Jew. He had come to the city of Jerusalem for Passover to celebrate the feast with Thousands and thousands of other Jews in Jerusalem for this Passover. They didn't have a clue that the Lamb of God had been beaten and shed his blood and was now traipsing up the Via Dolorosa, the the way of suffering, the way of the cross. They had no idea of knowing that was the Lamb of God, that was Jesus, that was the one who had come for the express purpose of dying in your place. Every other baby who's ever been born is born to live. But Jesus, the very moment he was born, he began the journey towards his death. And the cross cast a shadow over everything he did in his life. Everything. Everything he spoke, everything he did, you could point to the cross because that was his ultimate goal. And he knew that. And in his spirit, man, he was willing to go, but his flesh grew kind of weak. You remember, as he prayed in the garden, he said, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering pass from me. But if not... Then not my will, but thy will be done. So now he carries this crossbeam and he comes to the place of, of crucifixion. The word crucifixion is the source from which we get the word excruciating. In a Roman crucifixion, six inch spikes were driven into the hands and the feet, and the victim was left to die of asphyxiation. If they were left long enough in, in the heat of Palestine and in the sun, insects would burrow into the wounds and into the body cavities where birds of prey would then come and rip the flesh coming after those insects. It's a horribly humiliating way to die. To speed up death, the legs would be broken so that the condemned man could not raise himself to breathe. A spear would be thrust into the side just below the heart to puncture the heart cavity to further hasten death. After death, if no family appealed to the judge for removal, the body was left just to decay on the cross. It was a shameful, humiliating, painful way of cruel torture and death. So pastor, if it's that bad, why is there a fascination with the cross? Why do we use it in our decor of our home and wear one around our neck, and why do we put a cross emblem on our car? What, what's that all about? Friend, listen, it's because of what took place on that cross 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, the royal city, the holy city, the city of our God. Our Savior died in this fashion so that you and I could go free from the death that our sin nature dictated. Romans six twenty three says, the wages of sin is death. In other words, you serve the devil all your life. When you get to the end of your life and you're ready for him to pay you the wages of your sin, it's death. It's eternal separation from God. That's what death is. Wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Hallelujah. Christ Jesus, our Lord. We read in Colossians chapter two, verse 15, That God disarmed the principalities and powers that were raged, that were ranged against us, and made a bold display and a public example of them when he triumphed over them in him, in Christ, and in it, the cross. So God disarmed the principalities and powers who were against us, and he made a bold display and public example of them in. Triumphing over them in Christ and in His cross. In ancient days, it was common for um, when a king, there were kings over over various cities. Every city would have would have leadership, and most of them would have a king. And so, and so, when one king would come in and conquer a city, they would take the deposed king, the one who just been just been beaten and, and and lost, and they would put him in a cage. And uh, the cage would be on a cart pulled by oxen or horses or donkeys or something. And they would parade that fallen king through the streets of the city. And they would laugh and scorn and poke him and cut him and beat him and throw things at him, spit on him, so that the people could see that's your king. That's the guy you used to to honor and pay homage to. But there's a new king in town now. There's a new sheriff in, in town. Now this is the old guy and it was a it was a, it was a sign of of that they had conquered him They made a show of him they made a public display an example of this fallen king this is exactly what God did with the principalities and powers when Jesus died at the cross he triumphed over death over hell over the grave over satan over all sin he conquered them he triumphed over them in the, with his cross and so God has disarmed them and made a public example for the whole universe to look at. All the angels, all the heavenly family, all the earthly family, all of the beings that are in the heavens, they are able to, to watch and examine that God has shown a public example of Satan and his minions. They were defeated at the cross of Calvary. Jesus conquered death, hell and the grave, and he did so for you and I. Hallelujah. That's why there's a fascination with the cross. That's why we look to the cross and remember what Jesus did for us. And I want to tell you something, there's not a cross in my house that has Jesus still on it. (laughs) I know that's pretty common for some folk, but let me tell you, he's not on the cross. Is that right? Amen. Here's what happened to the cross. Number one, Jesus conquered the powers of sin, sickness, death, and the grave he did so as a perfect man who kept every word of God's law, every word. number two the second thing that Jesus did at the cross as a sinless man he became the perfect sacrifice for all of man's sin. the holy died for the unholy the sinless died for the sinful the innocent died for the guilty sees see, Jesus did not die for his sin. He died for the sins of others. Number three, he was received by God as a substitute for us. My life verses, 2 Corinthians chapter five, verse 21. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, God made him to be sin for us. He didn't just make him carry sin. He made him to be sin. So that in him, in Christ, we might receive and become the righteousness of God. It's it's, it's an incredible uh, exchange. Here's Jesus with all the righteousness of God. Here's Mickey just full of sin, covered with sin, born into sin, sin nature. Jesus became sin for me. He took my sin. He became sin. He conquered sin so that I could become the righteousness of God through him. Hallelujah. Now, insert your name where I put Mickey. <laughs> And if you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then my friend, it has been imputed unto you. Your faith has been imputed unto righteousness, and Jesus has given you right standing with the Father. It's not there because of what you do or what you know or verses you can quote or, or Bible, uh, Bibles that you have in your home. It's not there because of money that you give or anything else. It's there because Jesus has paid the price and he has taken your place and he's given you the righteousness of God, the right understanding of God, the right wisdom of God, the right knowledge of God, the right understanding of God, it's been given to those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. I tell you what, that makes me want to shout, makes me want to dance. If I was a dancer, I would dance, but you don't, the Lord loves it when I dance, but you don't, no, you not so much, you're, you're like preachers, settle down and stop that. can I just get a woohoo or something about this verse? I mean, woohoo, that's incredible. I said, that's incredible. I mean, you need to be writing that verse down or get your phone out and take a picture of that screen or something. Hang on to that verse. Text that verse to someone. Share it on social media this week. Do it out of a couple of different translations. That's the NIV right there. I learned it out of the King James, so I always quote it. King James. Doesn't matter, really. It's just so it's a, a true translation. Share it with someone. Let them know that there's hope in Jesus Christ. They may have thought there's no hope for them because of their sin, because of their, their shame, because of the guilt that they carry every single day and they think there's no hope for me. And I want to say to you, there's hope for you in Jesus Christ. So through the cross, number four, Jesus destroyed the work of the devil. Hebrews 2.14 says, now since the children have flesh and blood in common, he also shared in these, <clears throat> so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil. Since the children, us, have flesh and blood, he too, Jesus, shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. You see, he came to destroy the works of the devil. That's why he came. That's why the Son of God was made manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. Number five, this is my last uh, accomplishment of the cross. Number five, Jesus purchased us back by becoming the ransom for us. He purchased us by becoming the ransom for us. Look at Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as what? A ransom for many. Has he made his life a ransom for you? Are you part of the many? Yeah. So he didn't come to be served, he came to serve. He came to offer his life as a ransom for many. That you and I, and a ransom is paid when someone is considered worthy of the price. Jesus determined that you were worth the price of his death. The next time you question your worth, the next time you get a feeling down in the mouth and, 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 and belly aching and, and you're lower than a snake's belly in a wagon rut, <laughs> you remember that you were worth so much to Jesus that he was willing to give his life as a ransom for you. Buy you back? You know, if someone kidnapped me, for instance. They'd send a letter to my wife, or something, phone call, or something, and say, "We kidnapped your husband." And uh, she would say, "Who is this?" And uh, they they would get real serious with it. and they'd say, "We, we want a million dollars for him." She said, "Well, I got about seventy-five bucks in the bank. Will you take seventy-five bucks?" That's a a ransom. They're holding me hostage for a payment. You and I were held hostage by Satan, but Jesus determined you were worth his life and he gave himself as a ransom for you and for me. This is what uh, the Apostle Paul says about preaching the cross. Do we have this on the screen? 1 Corinthians 1. Do you have that passage? Yeah. Yeah. There it is, thank you. This is from the message paraphrase. I want us to read it together. Would you mind to stand? I'm, I'm at the end of my sermon, so if you don't mind to stand, please. That's always good for another five minutes of preaching. This is from the message paraphrase. 1 Corinthians 1 and 17. God didn't send me out to collect a following for myself, but to preach the message of what he has done collecting a following for him. And he didn't send me to do it with a lot of fancy rhetoric of my own lest the powerful action at the center, Christ on the cross, would be trivialized, trivialized into mere words. The message that points to Christ on the cross seems like sheer silliness to those hell-bent on destruction. But for those on the way of salvation, it makes perfect sense. Would you agree with that? This is the way God works, and most powerfully, as it turns out. It's written, I'll turn conventional wisdom on its head. I'll expose the so-called experts as shams. Verse 20, so where can you find someone truly wise, truly educated, truly intelligent in this day and age? Hasn't God exposed it all as pretentious nonsense? Since the world and all its fancy um uh, Wisdom never had a clue when it came uh, to, uh, well, I'm lost, (laughs) there it is. Never had a clue when it came to knowing God. God in his wisdom took delight in using what the world considered stupid, preaching of all things to those who trust him into the way of salvation. God has chosen preaching of the cross, preaching on the cross, preaching about the cross. Silly, foolish, to those hell-bent on on, on destruction. Yep. And, and the world considers preaching stupid, of all things. <laughs> to bring those into the way of salvation. Now, every one of us in this room have someone in our family or in our oikos, our, our sphere of influence, that needs to hear the gospel. They need to be saved. I'm a preacher that's true but I'm not the only preacher in this room every one of you who are believers in Jesus Christ are called to proclaim the good news that's what preaching is just proclaiming the good news and friend listen all you have to all you have to do to preach is to point to that object right there all you have to do is point to the cross and remind people what took place at the cross Tell them who died there. Tell them why he died there. Tell them who should have died there. It should have been you and I. That should have been my cross. The wages of sin is what? Death. I had no hope. I had no no chance, no, no hope whatsoever. Neither did you, but Jesus came, paid the price, became the ransom, so that you and I could go free. And that's what we need to be telling our family, our friends, and this is the week of, uh, of the Holy Week, the week of passion. Um, so many wonderful things that transpired in the life of Jesus. I encourage you to get your Bible to read this week. Uh, I was looking this morning on uh, version, I guess it was. And there are tons of devotionals on there designed for every day of this week. Find something and begin to read. Find something and begin to study. Open your heart to God's Word this week. Prepare your heart for Easter Sunday, for resurrection. Thank God for his resurrection. Every day this week, worship and thank God for his resurrection. Amen? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord Jesus, we pray for our friends watching us online. Right now, if they're watching live this morning or watching later on in the week, I pray, Lord, that you would supernaturally touch their hearts and give them a hunger to share the gospel of Christ. And Lord, I pray for the, my friends in this room in this auditorium today. Would you, oh Lord, do an incredible work in us so that we have a passion to share you and to share about your cross and to share about your resurrection, to share the fact that you're alive forevermore. Thank you, Lord. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Lord. Heads are bowed for one more moment. I want to know if there's someone here today who would say, Pastor, I'm lost. I don't know Jesus. I'm not, I've never been saved. Or maybe you have been saved, but you've, you've gotten away from him and gotten out of fellowship. And you really want to be restored into fellowship with God. If, that's, if you're in one of those two categories, I want to pray for you. Would you slip your hand up right where you're standing, please? That's all I want to ask you to do. Just slip your hand up so I'll know who to pray for. Someone who's lost, someone who's backsliding away from God. Thank you. I see that hand. Thank you. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Lord Jesus, this is a solemn moment, isn't it? This is a powerful time right now. Oh God, we cherish your cross. We thank you for the cross of Calvary. Thank you for the one who died there, the innocent dying for the guilty. The spotless lamb who gave his blood. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you Lord. Would you pray with me right now? I want to just leave this individual in prayer. Just say this out loud. Say let's all say, "Dear God, right now in Jesus name, I believe that my sins are being forgiven. I pray now that you would change my heart to hear your voice and to follow after you. I believe that you that Jesus, I believe pardon me. I believe Jesus was raised from the dead." And that you gave me it, you gave me eternal life. I receive in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's just rejoice, everybody. Come on.